Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. We've all heard stories about the deep connection between twins, particularly identical twins. Psychology Today explains why that bond is so strong with them. Quote, They share a primary attachment that is irreplaceable and forms a lifelong attachment and bond, as well as an indelible identity. Sharing their in utero life is the beginning of their nonverbal communication and their need for closeness. And comfort can be found in physical proximity, where a sense of oneness is maintained and often endures throughout their lifespans. Not only do they look alike, but they also often develop the same interests, run in the same crowds, and even finish each other's sentences. It is also said that they can feel one another's pain. Further still, while there's no scientific studies to prove it, there are also stories that twins feel when their mirror-imaged counterpart dies and struggle with how to live life afterward in a new existence, alone, after a whole life of connectedness with another sibling, which often results in extreme notions of survivor's guilt for the remaining twin. Their whole lives have been built upon the fact that they're not alone. So when something happens to a twin, it's almost as though the surviving twin feels the loss on an almost supernatural level. Such was the case for Barbara Brown. On the evening of December 9th, 1974, Barbara was walking home from playing euchre with friends when she suddenly felt a sharp pain in the back of her head. As she neared her parents' home, her mother ran out, calling for Barbara to get inside quickly. Something had happened to her twin sister. This is the case of Beverly Lynn Smith. Welcome to Coffee and Cases, where we like our coffee hot and our cases cold. My name is Allison Williams. And my name is Maggie Dameron. We will be telling stories each week in the hopes that someone out there with any information concerning the cases will take those tips to law enforcement so justice and closure can be brought to these families. With each case, we encourage you to continue in the conversation on our Facebook page, Coffee and Cases Podcast, because, as we all know, conversation helps to keep the missing person in the public consciousness, helping keep their memories alive. So sit back, sip your coffee, and listen to what's brewing this week. Did you know Anthony's dad is a twin? I did not. Yeah, they are twins. They're not identical twins. Um, but yeah. They do still so, obviously look alike. Since it skips a generation. 
Yes. So that was a big thing when we were doing all of our IVF because Mm -hmm. you have a stronger likelihood of having twins when you have IVF done. Plus we had the genetic factor as well. So that was one of the reasons they were really adamant Mm. on only transferring one egg. That makes sense. Increased odds, which we would have been fine with with twins. Just be done in one loop. One and done. There you go. <laughs> well, Beverly was actually one of four girls oh, wow. born to her parents. Mm-hmm. She had an older sister, and then came the twins, Beverly and Barbara, and then another sister. And the four were very close growing up, though obviously the twins shared a special connection. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And it is really sweet to see, like, Anthony's dad and his uncle, their connection that they have, mm-hmm. and to hear stories about, you know, them growing up and doing all kinds of twin things and they have other siblings too but it's just really special to watch Mm -hmm. them together yeah it's like a completely different experience Mm -hmm. i think and because identical twins aren't that common everyone in town knew them or knew of them well so another fun fact i guess this must run in the water in eastern kentucky (laughs) yeah when i was growing up in middle school my best friends were two sets of twins Oh, wow. And I think, I know for sure one was identical. I think they both were, actually. But yeah, so I was like the fifth little wheel. (laughs) (laughs) Well, when I say that Beverly and Barbara were identical, I mean it. An article in Toronto Life by Michael Lista even said that one of the only ways their mother could tell them apart was from the freckle that Beverly had (laughs) on the end of her nose. She has to paint one fingernail on one kid so (laughs) she'll know. That's right. So while the twins did nearly everything together, eventually, you know, they're of dating age and they Mm -hmm. begin doing some things on their own. And it was while in high school that Beverly met Doug Smith and they grew to be inseparable. They knew from the time they started dating in high school that they wanted to get married and they decided that they didn't want to wait. Oh. Yes. So Beverly and Doug were very young when they got married. They were, she was around 17 or 18, her sister recalled. So Beverly's father actually had to sign permission for Beverly to get married. And were they still in high school when they got married? So I didn't read whether they were or weren't, but the fact that her sister said she believed she was 17 or 18 makes me feel like Beverly was either a senior in high school or had just graduated. Yeah, because my mom was 17 when she got married and she had just graduated mm -hmm. and her parents had to sign for her too, which is crazy, but Mm -hmm. you know, each their own. That's right. So the newlyweds moved to Raglan, which was a little community between Oshawa and Port Ontario. We are in Canada this week. Canada, eh? In Ontario. They moved into an older brick house, but Beverly was super excited to start her new life. They were young, but they did like to, you know, and you could kind of sense their youth, I guess, Mm -hmm. because they still invited friends over to their home for house parties where there would be, you know, drinking, some recreational drug use. We are in the 70s and general partying and all of that information is according to an Amazon Prime documentary on the case entitled The Unsolved Murder of Beverly Lynn Smith. 
And I do remember when Anthony and I first got married, we would have like a Halloween party every year or a Christmas party every year. Right. And then like we turned into old fogies and now we're just like, mm, maybe later. Right. <laughs> Let's take a nap first. Yeah. And then maybe we'll see how we feel. Yeah. yeah. In the early days of their marriage, Doug worked at the General Motors assembly plant in Oshawa. It was called, according to the documentary, The Schwa. As locals oh, sometimes sounds kind of fancy, Oshawa, though. <laughs> Ontario. And to add to his income, according to stories in Toronto Life, Doug also sold some marijuana on the side. It was reported that Beverly was not a fan of the side business, even though mm-hmm. her family, they did acknowledge in that documentary that she would occasionally use pot. Do you say use pot? smoke pot herself smoke pot i think yeah the devil's lettuce <laughs> that's right <laughs> from our uh carly goose yeah episode uh but she did want doug to stop and i don't know if that's out of fear of the other players in the drug scene or what the specific reason yeah. was though that she wanted him to quit but Perhaps. Mom would be like, you're breaking rules so we can't do right that. right yeah this is against the law Though I do speed. Yeah. I guess I probably shouldn't say that out loud. Oh, I do too. I I don't count that. Okay. I don't count that. (laughs) Perhaps it was that just 10 months earlier, though, they had welcomed their beautiful daughter, Rebecca, into the world. So that might have had something to do with why she wanted him to. Oh, yeah. uh, yeah, it was 19 the habit. That's right. It was 1974. Beverly was 22. And Doug was 25. And I'm sure they were both tired because, you know, newborns take some adjusting to the sleep schedule with a newborn. Something to look forward to. Yeah, you'll know exactly what I'm talking about here in a few short months. And there had been some friction between the two, though I only heard this mentioned in the documentary. I didn't see it in any of my other research that Beverly had actually found out that Doug had cheated on her, which had caused a lot of Mm. arguments recently. Yeah. As you can imagine. But they were working through their issues, making, you know, trying to make their marriage stronger, which could be yet another reason it's reported that Beverly wanted Doug to stop selling drugs too. You know, like, let's focus on what's important. Yeah. Their actions on Monday, December 9th, 1974, were that of a typical family. They had run errands together, including buying stamps so Beverly could send out the Christmas cards that she had at home. I am horrible about that. I don't know if I've ever sent out Christmas cards, though I always wish I were the type. I think we did, like, me too, and I like to get them, and I think we did, like, the first two years we were married, but we always take Christmas photos. Like mm-hmm. we're going to send them right. out. But then <laughs> it's two days before Christmas and I'm like, oh, okay, never mind. Right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so when they returned, Doug actually got ready for work. And as he was pulling out of the driveway, he looked up to see Beverly standing in the window. The curtains were kind of pulled to the side. She was holding Rebecca in her arms and she took Rebecca's hand to wave bye-bye to daddy. So that's a sweet little image. Yeah. Doug clocked in at 5.53 because his shift began at 6. 
Meanwhile, Beverly had spread out the Christmas cards. She'd gotten to work on writing those. She also made a phone call to her family because, you see, Beverly hated the nights when Doug worked late because she was home alone. And I totally understand that. It was typical for her that as soon as she watched Doug leave, she would pull the curtains tight and call her family to pass the time. I mean, sometimes she would even talk to them (laughs) into the wee hours of the morning. And Doug had also taken to calling Beverly on his break from work just to check in on her. On this particular night, Beverly had asked her twin Barbara to come over But Barbara, who nearly always came over whenever Beverly called her, actually had plans for that Euchre game that I mentioned in the introduction and had declined. Mm -hmm. So Beverly had called her other family members just to chat. Doug tried calling his wife at 8.33 p.m., but she didn't answer. After is that calling, normal for her not to answer? No, that is not normal. She would always answer when he would call. So after calling several times and getting no response, Doug starts to grow worried. And so he calls the neighbors, Al and Linda Smith, same last name, but who are not related, who had, they had gotten home themselves a little bit after seven. So around the same time that Beverly had hung up from talking to her family. So Doug calls mm-hmm. them at 8.35 p.m. to go across the street to check on Beverly because she's not picking up. Linda walked across the street and when no one answered the door, she peeked in the window. That's when she saw Beverly on the kitchen floor, motionless with a pool of blood surrounding her head. Oh, how traumatic. Yes, she ran back over to her home, and she told Doug, who was still waiting on the phone, to hurry home, that something had happened to Beverly. Linda then had her husband, Alan, who a lot of people call Al, so I'll call him Al, to go have a look. He does, and he tells Linda when he comes back to call an ambulance. In the meantime, Al Mm -hmm. took his Humane Society truck, he worked for Humane Society, across the street and he turned on the spotlight in an attempt to help first responders to locate the home. Because I guess it was kind of, or at least a little bit rural. So he wants them to be able to see where to go. Yeah. When first responders arrived, they saw the scene exactly as it had been described. The kitchen was immaculately clean, save for the blood surrounding Beverly and the Christmas cards spread out on the table. EMTs immediately attempted CPR, but Beverly was gone. Do we know how long she was dead before they got there? Well, she got off the phone with her family at 7. And oh right, so it would have been pretty quick. Thirty-five, yeah. So there's only an hour and a half span when something happened. Autopsy reports would later show that her cause of death was a single gunshot wound to the back of the head, execution style, from no more than five feet away. Now, Mm. that pain that I mentioned at the beginning that her twin Barbara felt Uh when she was walking home in the back of her head seems ominous. 
mm-hmm. right? Because she's feeling that exact same pain. Beverly had wow. been shot, yeah, by a 22 caliber rifle. So a fairly cheap and common gun. There was no sign of struggle, nor of forced entry. There was a door frame that was broken that first responders noted in their uh, police notes that, or I guess documentation, that the neighbor Al told them he had done in breaking the door down to get into Beverly. Uh, It was actually a claim that he later disputed saying that he was not the one who knocked the doors down the door down but that emts were the ones to break the door down okay so at first we have it that he broke it down that's in the document oh but we're just going on based on what first responders said right Right. like first responders say al told me this and then he's like that wasn't me they were the ones that did it Right. And, you know, most people would be like, well, of course I'm going to believe the, you know, what the EMT responders said, you know, and things like that. But mm-hmm. from several of the the accounts that I read, there was reason to doubt the police statements. You see, the police department in general was barely older than baby Rebecca. They were, they had just been formed in January and this is December. Mm. Okay. So speaking of baby Rebecca, is she okay? She is actually, she had just been in the neighboring room from where Beverly was found. Wow. So, I mean, it it clearly was a targeted attack. Yes, clearly. Mm -hmm. They kind of, they hand baby Rebecca over to the neighbor, Linda. They also had a little girl until Doug got home. Um, So, yeah, the police department is newly formed. This is their first homicide investigation. And in addition to that, the department had all been at a department Christmas party when the call had come in and several witnesses even went so far as to say that they smelled alcohol on several of the officers. Oh my, that's a no, no. Mm-hmm. And whether due to drinking or to inexperience, there were many things that the investigators botched. They didn't take many pictures They lost files. They didn't interview everyone that they should have. One officer even put out his own cigarette in the ashtray in the home. Mm -hmm. And even an unidentified hair that was found under one of Beverly's fingernails was lost. (gasps) Oh, you know, though, I will say, I don't know. Maybe this is just me and you if I, if mm-hmm. we were these investigators i think if it was our first homicide investigation we mm-hmm. would be like bagging everything bagging oh, and yeah. bagging everything nobody's yeah. coming in nope we would be overly thorough over not the opposite yep. yep i agree yeah so i think we could chalk it up to something more than inexperience yeah But here's what we do know. We know that uh, Beverly's blouse looked kind of tussled, but we do know that that was due to the CPR attempt. There were Mm, no other signs of sexual assault. 
So, of course, that's ruled out as a motive. Mm-hmm. And again, whether the EMT or the neighbor broke down the door, there is no other sign of forced entry. Right. So somebody broke it down, but we have explanations as to who it was. So that seems to indicate that whomever had hurt Beverly had been someone that she trusted enough to let into her home. Because the shot came from inside her home. And I know they had the parties there, but did they have, did she have a truly big circle of friends or was it mainly just her family? I'm trying to figure out who this could have possibly been. I do think that they had, from what it seems, though I didn't, you know, read this explicitly, a a decent sized circle of acquaintances, at least. I wonder if it was the lover, if it was Doug's lover. I mean, potentially. I mean, there's lots Mm. of things that we'll talk about. Um, And she's, you know, the, the person he had cheated with isn't even someone who most people bring up. Interesting. I know. And while Doug, who had arrived obviously frantic and took baby Rebecca back from the neighbor Linda, did admit to officers to, you know, that he sold drugs, he actually told law enforcement officers when he started looking that six ounces of marijuana was missing. But there's another oh, so that's six, a potential motive. Well, there's another six ounces in the upstairs of the home. In individually wrapped Hmm. packages. So I feel like if that's the motive, why wouldn't you take all of it? Unless they were in a hurry, you know, and just grab what they could see and then left. I mean, maybe. But I agree with you. Yeah. So whoever had done this, they also hadn't robbed the Smiths. So they'd taken no money, no jewelry, no valuables from the home. So they're thinking, okay, what could be the motive? And why? Why Beverly? Mm -hmm. At the time, there were a few potential suspects who were looked into for the crime. Doug, of course, was looked into, um, but he had punched in at work. And while it is possible that someone could have clocked in for him, police found that scenario unlikely. Yeah, I think it would be difficult because I wonder how far away he worked. You know, would there have been enough time? Right. I don't know. And who would you convince to punch your card for you? Yeah. And then wouldn't they come out and say, hey, he asked me to punch his card for him that day. Oh. Yeah. Yeah. Then there were Al and Linda Smith, the neighbors who had discovered Beverly. But Linda stated that the two of them had been together since they got off work until Doug called them and she had found Beverly in the kitchen. Right. After he asked them to go check. Mm -hmm. So it seemed law enforcement would have to look outside of the neighborhood. One of the early suspects was Mark Kenny. He was another drug dealer, though, like lower level. He would buy from Doug and then go sell at the local high school, which is that's good Mm -hmm. yeah there had been a plan for mark who was trying to gather money together to meet doug for a buy that evening or to pick up a buy but mark was eventually ruled out as a suspect he said he was never able to get all the money together 
other theories explored were whether this was a professional hit. I mean, a lot of people think that because of the execution style shot Mm -hmm. from someone higher up in the drug ring. Maybe somebody who was upset because Beverly wanted Doug out or as a sign if, if Doug owed somebody money. However, if that were the case, then it would seem likely that they would have taken the rest of the drugs from the home. And I don't think she would have just opened the door for a random person. Right. I wouldn't think so. Another early theory was a man named Doug Daigle. A tip came in that Daigle could be involved in the murder. He was actually Doug's drug supplier. And according to one source, had floated Doug some drugs and he was ready to be paid back. I feel like this is a whole new language I'm learning. I know. Loaded some drugs. Yeah. Like, I know. I was I don't like, know what, well, I mean, you should, context clues. Right. You should see what I was Googling just to understand all this drug talk. <laughs> so Daigle was also said to act erratically when he himself was using PCP and that he allegedly said when asked if he were involved in Beverly's murder Something like, I may have done it. I don't know. I was stoned. What's PCP? It is phencyclidine, also known as angel dust. Okay. No, thank you. Mind-altering effects. Oh, so then he really could have done it. Yeah. Hallucinations, distorted perceptions, and violent behavior, according to Wikipedia. (laughs) Okay, so, so he could have done it and not even yeah, known. and that's basically what he said. However, there was zero concrete evidence to tie him to the crime, and he was never charged. Hmm. So whether police believed Daigle responsible or not, you know, when you don't have any solid evidence to link him to the crime, what can you do? Mm-hmm. So, according to Investigation Discovery, the best logical scenario that law enforcement could create as to what had happened was that Beverly had let someone in who had come to make a marijuana purchase and that as soon as she handed the drugs over, she had been shot. But again, if you're getting your drugs... And you're not robbing. Why? Yeah. Unless exactly. I guess you're on something else. Yeah. Or I could see if they had stolen the drugs upstairs, you know, because then they right. did. There was theft involved. But right. to just get what you came there for and get it without any hesitation or anything yeah. like that, then why kill them? Right. It doesn't make any sense. Hmm. I did also read in an article by Liam McConnell from April 19th, 2022, that police were able to determine that Beverly had several guests to her home on that December 9th. Now, it didn't say when, so I don't know if this is before Doug leaves for work, if it was afterward, but I did also read that they had all been eliminated as suspects in the case. So I guess they're all vetted. Police say, nope, it's none of these people. 
Without knowing who could have committed the crime, Beverly's sisters recall walking around the town and thinking about each person who they see. Could that be the killer? Was that him? You know, because there were no Mm -hmm. witnesses to anything and no one even heard anything. And you add that, you, you know, it gets compounded with the fact that there's no clear motive for the murder. So it's hard to know where to even begin. And because of that, the case soon went cold. And I honestly think that that could be potentially more scary than having a clear motive as to why someone died Mm -hmm. because it's like was she just randomly picked right you know what i mean it just adds a whole nother level Mm -hmm. of unknown to something that already has so many different factors in it and it could literally be anyone Mm -hmm. exactly and that's so scary so the case was cold until 2007 when a man named Dave wow. Maunder came to police with a claim. Yeah, so this crime happens in 1974. And now we're in 2007 is where we're jumping forward to. So this man, Dave Maunder, wow. he stated that he had actually asked the neighbor across the street, Al, to get him some pot and that Al told him he knew where he could get some from his neighbor Doug's house. So if this claim is true, then that, because Dave, this Dave Maunder said that Al gave him marijuana the next day. If this claim is true, then it would put Al in Doug and Beverly Smith's home before the discovery of Beverly's body. Right? Mm. Because it's Linda who goes over there and sees it first. He also tells police, Dave did, that Al owns a twenty-two rifle. I wonder, this could be very stupid and I could potentially sound very naive. But I wonder if we had that information at the time you know, in the 70s and not 2007, Mm -hmm. if there would have been a way to determine that the weed that Dave bought from Al was the same weed that was in Doug's home. Mm. Now I think we would be able to tell to kind of match. But probably not then. Right. Yeah. Yeah. In 2007, there was a new lead detective, Detective Leon Lynch, assigned to the case, and he decided to reopen the investigation. In doing so, he noticed a discrepancy in the claim about the broken-in door, right? Because remember, the EMT said that Al told them he broke it in, but then he read in other documentation that... Al said it was the EMTs who broke it in. And so that discrepancy together with Dave's claim, Detective Lynch decided to take a closer look at Al Smith. So he called in Linda, who had long since been divorced from Al. And her story began to change. Mm -hmm. Detective Lynch also called Al back in 
and asked him to take a polygraph test, which he agreed to do. They asked him in this polygraph test if he killed Beverly Lynn Smith or if he knew who killed Beverly Lynn Smith. He answered no to both questions, but the polygraph examiner told him that deception had been indicated. And Maggie, I watched the video when this polygraph examiner is telling Al the news and is saying, basically, I know you're lying. The polygraph exam indicates deception. And Al is immediately and visibly upset. Like he keeps stating, I had nothing to do with it. Those can't be the results because I'm innocent. I had nothing to do with it. Those are the things he keeps saying. Hmm. I mean, it's a little fishy, though. Yeah. Oh, if you think we're in a roller coaster now, you just wait. So Linda, too, was when she was brought in, given a polygraph test, she, too, was asked whether she killed Beverly Lynn Smith or whether she knew who had killed Beverly Lynn Smith. She also answered no to both questions. Again, deception was indicated. Police became convinced that the two were hiding something. Yeah, obviously. Yes. Now, before I go into what they ended up hearing from Linda, I did want to go ahead and tell you about Al and Linda's relationship kind of in the meantime. So back in 1974, when they were Doug and Beverly's neighbors, they too were a young couple with a young daughter. But by 1978, the two had grown increasingly apart. Linda decided to leave their lifestyle of drug abuse and join the church, but had said that Al had a harder time with that change in lifestyle. She accused him of being abusive due in part to his drug and alcohol addictions and noted that he had a long history of depression and had attempted suicide at least three times. Okay, so mixing the drugs and alcohol in Mm -hmm. there probably wasn't the best choice for your mental health. Exactly. And the two had divorced in the 90s, and Linda had moved in with a friend, Janet, who she had met at church, and who she kind of looked up to as a spiritual guide. So that's kind of what has happened in the meantime. So when they're calling Linda back in, she and Al had long since been apart. Mm-hmm. Janet and the police. So Janet, remember, is Linda's roommate and friend. And the police soon began working together to see what oh. information Linda could provide. Even getting Janet. Mm-hmm, even getting approval for wiretaps after Linda had failed her polygraph. So, Linda had been told about Dave's statement, right? Remember that he had oh, yeah, the marijuana get him, yeah, pot and all of that stuff. And then she soon began to wonder if maybe she had just buried some memories in her mind out of fear 
And that's why she couldn't remember anything about the night other than that she and Al had been together the whole time. Now, she changes her story. She says now she remembers that Al had gone over to Doug and Beverly's house to get something for Dave. Okay, and make sure, just to make sure my timeline is correct, mm-hmm. there, Linda and Al are gone until about 7. Right. That's when they get back home. Mm-hmm. Beverly last talks to her family around that same time. Correct. And then they supposedly go to check on her or well linda goes to check on her around like 8 30 correct i wonder if her family remembers her saying something like oh someone's at the door i have to get off the phone i didn't see that in any of the research so i do not believe that that's the case but he did have time to go over there though Mm -hmm. but she had in all of the years since maintained that they had been together the whole time but now she's saying something different happened So during the course of a nine-hour interview with Linda, yeah, she says, you know what? Al did get a call that evening that he answered. And then she says she watched him leave the house. She now says that they weren't together the whole time, that he was actually gone a while, and that she heard a noise that sounded like it could be an engine backfiring. And that when she saw him again in their driveway, that she also saw him put a gun under the seat in his work vehicle. They need to, I feel like they need to hypnotize her and see what her memories truly are. Yeah. So based upon this new information, Al was arrested in March 2008 for Beverly's murder, and Linda was charged with obstruction of justice for not telling this information at the time, though her charges were eventually dropped. Interestingly, several of Al's siblings, including his sister who was interviewed for the documentary, believe him when he continued to maintain his innocence. She said in the documentary that she knows when her brother Al is lying because he does something unique with his eyes when he fibs. And she said that when she asked him if he had anything to do with Beverly Smith's murder, she swears that she believes he's telling the truth when he says he didn't. Anthony's nose flares when he lies. Oh, so there you go. You would know Mm -hmm. whether he's lying or not. And there are some problems with Linda's story, Maggie. First, according to one of Al's attorneys that he, of course, had to hire when he's charged with the murder, when Linda took the lie detector test, her answer to, do you know who shot Beverly Smith, of no, did not indicate deception. Her answer to, did you shoot Beverly Smith, of no, did indicate deception so first of all that would seem to say that it was linda who did it not al number one Mm -hmm. but number two his lawyers actually point out no it's neither one of them because those two answers cannot logically coexist because if she did shoot beverly then she she would would know know who shot who shot beverly right 
So they're saying that proves that this lie detector test is just flawed. Yeah. Mm -hmm. On the contrary, obviously, the polygraph examiner stands behind his ruling on the polygraph results. Well, obviously, he's not going to be like, yeah, I screwed up. Right. Al's lawyers argue that law enforcement were feeding information and scenarios to Linda. Right. Like the Dave confession story. Mm -hmm. They argue that lead detective Lynch had Linda convinced that Al had so much power over her that her fear of him had just pushed down the truth. And they really need Linda to switch from being an alibi to Al into a witness who had, you know, who could give them corroborating evidence to support their working theory that they now have because of Dave. And if Linda and Al had a rough divorce, Mm -hmm. it could almost be like she's getting back at him. Yeah, that's another possibility. And it, it did seem like Linda was doing just that, moving from an alibi to a witness against him. If she could just remember what really happened, (laughs) maybe they could locate evidence to prove Al's guilt. This is what they're thinking. Because right now, they have nothing. Nothing to put Al in the home. No motive for him to commit the crime. And they don't have a 22 in custody that was linked to him. I mean, we have Dave saying that he had one, but we don't have it. There's literally no evidence. What's more, says Al's lawyers, in a case that truly hinges upon Linda's story, she keeps changing it. You see, after the story that I just told you, Linda comes back to the police with a different scenario about the night in question. So her third story. Yes. Now, she says, Al went over there to get pot for Dave, but he was taking too long. She says she always knew that Al had a crush on Beverly and Linda was growing jealous. So she had gone over there to see what was taking so long. She says that when she arrived, she saw Al backing away from the table and her first thought was that he was cheating again. She says there was a rifle near the doorway, so she grabbed it and now she thinks she's the one who shot Beverly. Oh. She says that Al then took the rifle in his Humane Society vehicle and had disposed of the gun in the land around the Humane Society. And she tells police, you know what? You could probably go there. I could probably lead you to where the gun is. And if you take a metal detector, you'll probably find it. But when taken to the location, she seems disoriented. She's commenting on how much things had changed about the location over the years And when police turn up nothing from the search, she admits to them that this third story was really just a quote-unquote logical conclusion from what she thought may have happened. She's not making any sense to me. Linda was charged with obstruction of justice again and is sent to a psychiatric hospital for treatment. While there friend Janet, who was now working even more extensively with police, visits her and she tells Linda, you have to tell me the truth. And if you continue to lie, we can no longer be friends. So Linda now tells 
another version of what happened that night. She still maintains that Dave wanted drugs, so Al went to go get them, but she says she followed him over there. She said that she was the one who knocked on the door and got Beverly to answer. That when Al made the drug purchase, that Al pulled a gun at that point and shot Beverly, and that Linda herself had run home out of fear. Well, I have some problems with this theory as well, though, or this story, I guess I should say, Mm -hmm. because that makes it sound like Beverly was shot in the front. Mm -hmm. If she's answering the door, they're doing a drug exchange, she hands it over, you know. Yeah, because why would you turn around? In the back of the head. If people are there. Why would you turn around if people are at your door? Right. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the Fileo fish sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Did you know that dehydration is the leading cause of daytime fatigue? I was shocked to learn that even mild dehydration can cause headaches, muscle weakness, and brain fog. But luckily, there's a solution. Cure. Cure believes that hydration should be simple and effective, but also clean and natural. That's why they use only the highest quality plant-based ingredients and avoid any artificial or harmful additives. They're committed to transparency and honesty. All of their ingredients are clearly listed on their website and packaging, and they're always happy to answer any questions or concerns. Ready to combat dehydration? Try Cure today and feel the difference for yourself. Use code COFFEEINCASES for 20% off your order. So it's when they start looking at this changing testimony from Linda that a judge ruled in July 2008. So after spending more than four and a half months in jail waiting trial, that there was, quote, not a reasonable prospect of condition, end quote, meaning there was not enough evidence to hold Al Smith. Because without her, you've got nothing. There's nothing, yeah. And if he is innocent, which I'm sure, you know, we'll talk about. Mm -hmm. I think that's so sad because that's four months of his life he will never get back. I know. He was released and again made a public statement of innocence. So those who believe Al Smith argue that Detective Lynch basically saw Linda as weak and had manipulated her into telling a story that would implicate Al so that the case could be solved. Seems like it was working. And yeah, there's other cases we've covered that we've talked about that possibility. Mm -hmm. We've seen that even in cases that have been solved that witnesses are manipulated. Mm -hmm. And they argue what we just said. 
There is no physical evidence to support the theory that Al Smith committed the murder. None. Zilch. For Beverly's family, though, they were beginning to believe, as many investigators were as well, that the police had the right guy. They just didn't have the evidence yet. In the documentary, Beverly's twin sister, Barbara, recalls Al staring at her in court, quote, like he saw a ghost, end quote. Well, I can, ex- I feel you can explain that, though. Mm-hmm. If she looks that much like her sister, mm-hmm. I mean, he found Beverly right. dead. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I think that would cause a little bit of a shock mm-hmm. to see someone sitting there that looked exactly like her. Right. But for for Barbara, it was that look in her mind that told mm-hmm. her all she needed to know. Yeah. Right. Because in her mind, he's looking at her like that because he's guilty. Rebecca, remember baby Rebecca, now a grown woman, was in court right next to her aunts. She had actually learned of the murder when she was only six years old. And her grandma's neighbor's daughter had shown her a newspaper clipping about her mom's murder. Wow. Traumatic way to Mm -hmm. find out. Mm -hmm. Since then, she too had been desperate for justice, and she too didn't find it easy to let go of Al Smith as a suspect. Mm -hmm. So she did admit she realizes that more evidence is necessary. In the documentary, she said something to the effect of, The fact that she didn't want an innocent person to pay the price for her mother's death, but that she does want the guilty party to pay. Yeah. But the next move by police to try to elicit a confession from Al, who they still believe is guilty, law enforcement does, becomes even more questionable, as I'll tell you about in just a moment. But before I get to that, I need to tell you about what Al was up to. After his release from jail in 2009. I'm interested now. I'm intrigued. In the time after Al was released from jail, as you can imagine, his friend group had dwindled. Mm -hmm. And jobless, he was forced to accept the offer to stay in his daughter's basement. There was really only one thing that connected Al to his old life, and that was his lifelong love of fishing. And luckily, almost pretty soon after his release from jail, he won a contest to go ice fishing on Lake Simcoe. So a vehicle had shown up to pick up Al and the other winners of this contest and take them to their prize. And it was on this trip that Al befriended one of the other winners, Danny. And, you know, here's Al. He doesn't have any other friends who you know, was really stuck around. And Al grew increasingly close to Danny. They started going fishing together all the time, talking on the phone every day. But Danny soon made a proposition that would forever change Al's life. Danny was involved in selling drugs and wanted to know if oh, Al. Al wanted in on it as well as an easy way to make some extra cash. And again, jobless. This sounds pretty good to Al. Right. Sounds pretty good. Yeah. So other than fishing, Danny and Al begin committing crimes together. 
selling drugs, getting a small cut of the sale, with basically Al often being the lookout when the deals would go down. But the crimes that the two were involved in soon escalated, and Danny introduced Al to the drug kingpin, Jake. So the sales that they're involved in grew larger, as did the payoff, with one sale being of 40 pounds of marijuana. Wowza. Yeah. But this sale was different from the ones that had come before, because kingpin Jake didn't like the man who was paying for the weed in the sale. And he had tasked Danny and Al with stealing the marijuana back from the man as soon as Jake got the money from the sale. So Jake is basically like, Danny, Al, make the sale of 40 pounds of marijuana, get the money, bring me the money, and then I want you to rob the man and get the marijuana back too. Oh, so then they can sell it again. Mm -hmm. So they did. And then afterward, the two, Danny and Al, kind of chat about the high that they felt from the adrenaline rush in that moment. And they actually had plans to go fishing the next morning afterward. So Al hears a knock on his window in the middle of the night. And at first he thought it was Danny just deciding, you know, that they need to leave early for their fishing trip, like earlier than expected. But that wasn't the purpose of the visit. Instead, Danny came to get Al because Jake, the kingpin, needed to see them both, and he needs them to bring a change of clothes for him. Okay. Are we going to a water park? Because that's really like the The only only reason. reason. Yeah. So the two (laughs) arrive at this big industrial park to meet with Jake, who is covered in blood and has a body wrapped (gasps) in a blue tarp. So Jake tells them that the man who they had robbed earlier began to suspect that Jake was behind the robbery, right, to take the drugs back and had confronted him about it. And that in that confrontation, Jake had basically taken care of the problem. He said, quote, I met with that effing guy. He tried something. He's no longer around. Okay. I just think... This is such an intense world, like beyond the world that you and I live right. in. Right. I would never be brave enough. So I, I could never be a gangster. Right. I could yeah. never be yeah. brave enough. Yeah. No, I couldn't either. I'd be peeing my pants. Yeah. So Jake tells them that he needs them, Danny and Al, to dispose of the body, to burn the clothes. He tells them to wait at least 20 minutes after dumping the body before calling him to let them know that it's done and then to meet him at his cottage. So the pair do everything that Jake had asked them to do and then they go to that cabin. There, when Jake finally arrives, he says basically... To Danny and Al, well, now you have something on me, and I'm not comfortable with that being the case. We need to make it even. So he demands that both Danny and Al give him some deep secret in return so he can have a secret on them and basically some assurances that they're not going to go to the police and rat him out. I mean, mom would literally be like, one time there was these command strips underneath a poster I bought and I accidentally left the store without paying for them. (laughs) And I went back in and told the cashier and paid for them. Mine's like, (laughs) I speed sometimes. 
Yeah. 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 But according to investigative reporter Michael Lista, these demands from Jake took place at knife point. And it was then that Al made a confession. What he later confessed to was being involved in Beverly's murder, but saying that it was Dave Maunder, remember the guy who told police Mm. that he had asked Al to get him some weed, who pulled the trigger. So the conversation between Al and Jake went something like this, according to Wendy Gillis's August 3rd. 2014 article in the Toronto Star. Now, Maggie, I know you haven't seen this or heard this, but I'm going to have you read Jake just so our listeners can kind of tell how this conversation is going. Okay. And how do we have this confession? I'll get to that in a moment. Okay. Okay. So Al says, yes, you're Jake. Al says, my buddy Dave and I had set up this guy, Doug. Yeah. We were watching for the longest time. So he got in 40 pounds of weed. Back then, him and I were, we were hurting. Who's Dave? He was my buddy back then, Dave Maunder. Well, where's he now? Uh, He lives in Calgary. Okay. When was the last time you talked to this effing guy? A year ago. All right. And we had it set up that when Doug went to work at General Motors at six at night, that we were going to just shortly after to get the the 40 pounds. Yeah. So I went in, I ran upstairs, got the 40 pounds. He was downstairs. He had a 22 with him just for backup. Yeah. Now she ran toward the cupboard and Dave doesn't know what she's running for the cupboard for, whether it was a handgun or just a normal rifle. Yeah. Whatever. So he plugged her in the back of the head. Once? Just once. Yeah. And she went uh, down and that was it. She was out quick. That was. Who was it that plugged her? Dave Maunder. Dave Maunder plugged her? Yeah. Then Jake asks about the murder weapon. Where's the gun? She's long time buried. Oh yeah, it's been it's been buried now for 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 eons. Like about uh I would imagine by now twenty feet down in the quagmire. So who buried it? Swamp. Swamp. Oh, I did. You ever touch it? No, no. How'd you get it buried? What? How'd you get it buried? It was wrapped. You you mean the cloth? Yeah. What'd you wrap it in? It was an old jacket, an old red, um, an old red, uh, not Fisher jacket, but a red shirt. I just. Did you throw any bullets in with it? Everything. Everything's in the swamp. I'm the only guy that knows where it is. Interesting. That's the confession. So Al wouldn't come any closer to admitting his own involvement in the murder until another confession in November 2009. This one came after Jake, remember the kingpin, says he hired a private investigator to look into the claims that Al made right, that this this Dave Maunder pulled the trigger to know if it's, you know, the complete truth or not. And when threatened... He's really dedicated to having these these stories on these guys. When threatened, Al says, you know what, you're right. It's not true. I lied. I actually had nothing to do with Beverly's murder. Okay, but can you blame him, though? Because he was at knife point. So I 
If I hadn't done anything bad, I would think of something to lie about. Right. So, well, Jake grows upset, you know, when he says, Mm -hmm. you're right, I lied. I didn't have anything to do with it. And he says, you know, basically, well, then where's that leave us? Because now I don't have any dirt on you, Al. So Al's friend Danny, who's there in a situation with him, begins to pressure Al to just tell Jake the truth so they can all leave happy. So eventually, Al begins talking again. This time, Al says that Dave didn't pull the trigger. He did. He stated, quote, look, if I tell you this for F's sake, Dave had nothing to do with it. It was me. I did it all myself. I sold the pot off quietly, bits and pieces, end quote. He said that Beverly had let him in and that she had never even noticed the gun. It was when Beverly turned to warm up little Rebecca's bottle that he shot her a single time in the back of the head, and that he spent the rest of his life, quote, playing dumb about it. When pressed for details of how he hid the gun from Beverly, though, right, because he says she didn't notice it, you know, at all, his details kept changing. At one point, he says he hit the gun behind his back. At another point, he said he hit it down his pant leg. In another version, he says he hit it in his coat. But he ended by providing a motive for the murder in the following exchange. Mm, So you just, you were going to pluck her no matter what or what happened? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. She had a big mouth. Oh, yeah. Was she chirping about you? Yeah, prior to it all. Oh, yeah? What was she chirping? Well, this chick I was banging, a friend of her sister's. Yeah. Mm. And you're afraid of the ex finding out? Uh, That and losing everything. My whole family thinks I'm as innocent as the day is long. Yeah? And they're always going to think that. So, that's the second conversation that happens. And now you asked a fantastic question earlier, Maggie, and now I'm going to tell you the answer. You said... How do we know all of this? And Maggie, we know all of this information because none of it was real. The questionable tactics employed by police that I told you about a little bit ago was part of a grand hoax called a Mr. Big Sting operation. It is a practice that was developed in Canada but has been ruled illegal to use in many other countries around the world, like the United States. But it's basically when an undercover officer, right, puts on this huge production that they're all part of a crime ring. And literally everyone involved is an undercover cop, except for the one person that they're trying to elicit a confession from. So you're telling me that Jake is not a real person? Correct. He's an undercover cop. Danny. I was really into this. Mm -hmm. An undercover cop. All the people who they sold to, the guy who they robbed, undercover cops. Yeah. So even the like fake, Mm -hmm. the body they hid. It was a a weighted mannequin. I can see why this should be ruled illegal. Yeah. It's a little, it's a little, a little suspect. Yeah. So basically, they try to get the person so involved in the criminal activity that they eventually meet the lead mobster or lead drug dealer or what have you who tries to get a confession of a crime in order to gain credibility in the group. 
that the that the person thinks is real. So Al thinks all of this is real. And by the way, Jake and Danny were not their real names. Those were the names that were used in the documentary to describe them. So I just use the same names here. Gotcha. And that's exactly what this quote unquote Danny did. He was an undercover officer who befriended Al. He made Al think that they were best friends. And that they were. Did they make up the fishing the fishing thing too? Oh yeah, it was a lot. They made up the contest. Mm-hmm. Yep. Oh, and made Al believe that they were in this situation together. He then introduced Al to quote unquote Jake, the boss, who got them in even deeper. And when Jake tells Danny and Al that he needs something on them to make it all even, that's the confession that law enforcement are looking for. So they're wanting Al. To admit that he was responsible for Beverly's death. I mean, that's, I know we're talking about a murder, Mm -hmm. but that's a little shady in and of itself. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I don't know. I don't know how I feel about it. Yeah. I don't know. So based on these two confessions, they come to arrest Al in December 2009 and charge him with first degree murder. And it was while he was at the station. I want you to imagine, I know we're talking about Al and we don't know whether he's guilty or not. We still don't. But imagine how devastating this is because while he's at the station, he sees his quote unquote friend Danny and Jake now in uniform. And realizes that his whole life for the past, this went on for almost a year, has been a lie. So he didn't know until he saw them there? Mm -hmm. Oh my Mm -hmm. God. I feel like if he is not guilty, he is due some, I don't know, like reimbursement or something. That is traumatic. And like his family knew Danny and everything. Kind of reminds me of 21 Jump Street, Mm -hmm. how they get real in there. Mm -hmm. Oh, wow. So while he's there at the police station, they did finally tell Al that the quote-unquote body he believed he helped dispose of was just a weighted mannequin and that the blood that he had seen on Jake was sheep's blood. He was told that during all of the drug exchanges that he took part in, everyone involved but him was an undercover officer. So, I mean, even if they don't get him on murder charges, can they have him on the drug charges? See, I don't know how that works. And I didn't see that they charged him with anything like that. So I'm thinking Mm. no. But they argued that what Al did tell them during those two confessions in their minds proved that he had committed the murder of Beverly Lynn Smith. Because they're thinking, Why else would he have said something like that? So they argue if he's going to, quote unquote, create a crime, why was it that one if it weren't true? Like, why not fabricate something else? But I think that would be easy for if we're playing devil's advocate. Mm -hmm. I think that would be easy for him to fabricate that because he's been accused of that his whole life. So I'm sure if he was coming up with a lie, that would be the first thing that he would come to mind because it's been. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And there were some problems with Al's confessions since he got some of the details wrong. Like, for example, he said that he had taken 40 pounds of marijuana from Dave the night of the murder. When, remember, Dave said only six ounces are missing. Well, there's a huge difference between 40 pounds and Mm -hmm. six ounces. 
40 pounds was how much Al had exchanged in his last quote unquote run for Jake. Not on Jake. Right. On December 9th, 1974. So his lawyers point out that that, you know, that detail for them shows that Al was making things up on the spot. The police argue that during their entire investigation, they had gotten to know Al very well. And that even when they disposed of the body, you know, Danny and Al, Mm -hmm. that it seemed as though to this undercover officer, Danny, that Al had done something like this before and even felt like Al was, quote unquote, coaching Danny through how to process this, like telling him to breathe in, breathe out, try not to think about it. And I actually listened to some of these tapes because Maggie, they recorded everything. Mm. And I think that could potentially, you know, I think reading about it or hearing about it as we're doing here Mm -hmm. on a podcast Mm -hmm. can make you feel one way Mm -hmm. compared to if you're actually listening to the legitimate conversation. You know, you then you get tone and all that. stuff. Right. Right. Mm -hmm. So Al's lawyers, on the other hand, they argue that the entire time Al was afraid for his life. And that's why he said the things he said out of fear that if he didn't confess to something big, that he too would die. And the tapes do have Al, because I listened to some of them. They were part of that documentary. They do have Al seeming to give Danny advice because he does say like, okay, breathe in, breathe out, try not to think about it. But it also shows Al as a man who's so emotionally distraught after the crime of disposing of this mannequin that he turns to Danny and he says, just don't talk to me for a little bit, okay? Because he says he just can't talk right now. And he keeps saying, I think I'm going to puke. I think I'm going to puke. So I feel like I am really playing devil's advocate with Al and I'm not intending to do that because, you know, mm-hmm. I know we all want closure and I want the, mm-hmm. just like Rebecca, I want the correct person mm-hmm. to pay mm-hmm. for this crime. But something I've noticed about myself, so two different instances where this sticks out. Mm-hmm. So like a week and a half ago, we had baby birds in the little nest mm-hmm. and I was walking to see them outside and I missed the last step. And so I like twisted my ankle really bad and I'm in a boot for a while. Mm. And in the video when, because I was trying to figure out obviously if I needed to call the OBGYN because I fell. Uh And so we have a security camera out back. So in the video, when you replay it, like you can hear I'm talking to myself. I'm like, you're okay. It's okay. It's okay. Mm -hmm. Just breathe. Just breathe. Mm -hmm. And then in another instance, I had to drive to Pike County in a snowstorm once after Anthony had surgery. So I was driving and we should not have been driving because you couldn't even see the road. Mm -hmm. And like the whole time I'm talking to myself, it's fine. You can do this. And so I wonder if it's something Mm, like that. Maybe he's not coaching Danny, but he's coaching himself. Breathe out. Don't think about it. I mean, that's true. That's a fantastic point. Yeah. He told the Toronto Star, Al did, in 2014, quote, they put me through all kinds of horrific scare tactics. I thought my life was in jeopardy. Is this what we do in this country? End quote. Yeah. Like I said, that would be, I mean, 
Beverly's family. Mm-hmm. I understand they're dealing mm-hmm. with the loss of a loved one, and that's so traumatic mm-hmm. and, you know, so life-altering. But if Al in- is innocent, he's had some traumatic right. events in his life yeah. as well. In the courtroom, though, Maggie, law enforcement argued the opposite. They said, nope, Al wasn't afraid of any of these people. Because, of course, they also know if it's a confession that's made under duress, it's not admissible in court. Al's Mm. lawyers, on the other hand, further argued that because of the way the sting operation went down, Al had been denied his right to an attorney and his right to remain silent. And those are freedoms not just guaranteed here in the U.S., but also under the Charter of Rights and Freedoms in Canada. Oh, I hadn't even thought about that. Mm -hmm. Then one other problem reared its ugly head. So every single minute of the sting operation had been recorded. In those tapes, you can hear, again, because some of them are included in that documentary, Danny will be in his truck and he says like, okay, it is this date and this time and here's our plans for the day. And then you could hear him get out of his truck and then have these interactions with Al as if they're best friends. There were more than 1,500 hours of tapes during the entirety of the operation. But it was one tape that interested Al's lawyers the most because on it, One of the officers, and this was the day that Al gave his first confession to Jake, when he says, I need some dirt on you. Mm -hmm. One of the officers had forgotten to turn off the recorder, and the conversation that was caught was just what Al's lawyers needed, because on it, the officers were laughing and talking about how terrified Al is. And that the fear is what led to the confession. Like even telling Danny, Al did, that the only reason he quote unquote confessed was because he was scared. And they're talking about it. But then they joke that if they're asked about it on the stand in court, that they're going to say something like, Your Honor, he wasn't afraid. And if he was, he didn't show it. And we're not mind readers. (gasps) Ha 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 ha. Yeah. And they had made similar statements in court, despite admitting on this tape that the confession came as the result of fear. So Al Smith was brought to trial in 2014. Remember, they arrested him in 2009. So he's been in prison awaiting trial since 2009. Not very speedy. No. So he was brought into trial in 2014, but because the Mr. Big sting operations, they'd recently been brought into question in another case in Canada where they discovered that these Mr. Big stings were known to elicit false confessions for multiple Hmm. reasons, because the person involved was often destitute, afraid of losing their only friends, afraid of losing their only access to money, or out of fear of personal harm. So the judge in Al Smith's case ruled that the confessions given by Al during the operation itself would not be admissible in court. So again, we're left with accusations against Al Smith, 
but zero physical evidence or confessions linking him to the crime. So for the second time, though this time obviously waiting in prison for four and a half years, not just months, Al Smith was acquitted. He has since sued dozens of officers from the Ontario police due to that sting operation for a total of $19 million. But even though that detail was mentioned in articles from 2016, I didn't read anywhere whether he was awarded any compensation. And that doesn't give him that time back. Right. Yeah. And after the acquittal, one of Al Smith's lawyers, Allison Craig, told the media that law enforcement, quote, not only crossed the line, but they trampled it. She continued, quote, it resulted in a false confession and an innocent man being in jail for many years. And hopefully it won't be repeated. End quote. Yeah. I don't know who is responsible for Beverly's death, but I do hope the responsible party is brought to justice. Yeah. Despite having no physical evidence and there being inconsistencies in the confessions and details from that night, Barbara and Rebecca still believe in Al's guilt. For them, it's other little details that ring true. For example, for Rebecca, it's that detail that her mother had gone to grab a baby bottle when he said he fired the shot that makes her believe his confession. Needless to say, we still don't know who is truly responsible for Beverly Lynn Smith's murder, but we do know that there must be evidence somewhere because the gun is still missing, and we know that someone's conscience must be screaming to let go of the guilt carried with them for all these years, but without that evidence or an uncoerced confession, justice remains elusive. What doesn't remain elusive is the pain that is still front and center for those who knew and loved Beverly, particularly so for her daughter, who has to rely on stories from others to even tell her own children what their grandmother was like, and for Beverly's twin, Barbara, who is reminded of Beverly's tragic death every time she looks in a mirror. Barbara Brown told the documentary makers that she wanted a name for who murdered her twin sister because she wanted somebody to hate. At the end of the documentary, she looks into the camera and states that she has the name she needs. Still others continue to believe the opposite, or at least that there's more needed in this case for a conviction like Michael Lista, who in his January 27, 2020 article, The Sting, from Toronto Life states, quote, Confessions are the worst kind of evidence because there's no empirical truth to them. They have to be checked against what actually happened, corroborated. Otherwise, they're just words. Nouns and verbs don't stick under a victim's fingernails. Don't fluoresce like blood under luminol. The human mind is as pliable as plastic, end quote. Fortunately for us, the truth isn't pliable, and the truth is still out there. Barbara once said to an officer, quote, I'm losing my hope. Can you hold on to it for me? While handing the officer a pebble with the word hope engraved on it. 
We here at Coffee and Cases want the family to know that while we don't have a physical representation of their hope, we will continue to hold on to it for them, that one day they will have all the answers they so desperately need. Again, please like and join our Facebook page, Coffee and Cases Podcast, to continue the conversation and see images related to this episode. As always, follow us on Twitter at Cases Coffee, on Instagram at Coffee Cases Podcast, or you can always email us suggestions to coffeeandcasespodcast at gmail.com. Please tell your friends about our podcast so more people can be reached to possibly help bring some closure to these families. Don't forget to rate our show and leave us a comment as well. We hope to hear from you soon. Stay together. Stay safe. We'll We'll see see you you next week. notes with maggie and allison we have a short one today but we have lots of love going out to cindy courtney keely cheyenne michelle sarah and spartacus for reaching out to us this last week with comments on social media you have no idea how much we love hearing from you and On top of the love notes, which are already wonderful enough, we wanted to give you a little teaser that we are working on the details for our next live show. Mm -hmm. You did hear that correctly. And we will pass those along as soon as we get them finalized. So with that, all of our love is going out to each and every one of you. Until next week, Sleuth Hounds.